are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Scott Stearman is one of my good friends, and he's a great writer. And uh, this morning, I wanted to share with you a few of his words. Scott says, the whispered voices of my ancestors speak of a time when men stood together. They raised their weapons, and they vanquished the enemy. They were immortalized in song, revered by children, and loved by their women. They stood in the sun, set their faces into the wind, and bore on bronze shoulders the weight of the responsibility for the preservation of life. They were a noble brotherhood of warriors. Did they fight for the survival of their family and their tribe? So one day I could actually utter these words. I'll have the quiche of the day and a double vanilla non-fat latte. (laughs) Scott says today our roles as men can be confusing. Popular culture says we can no longer behave like barbarians. And I think that's a good thing. But Scott asked the question, how and where do we fit? The idea about being a warrior has caught on with men. Most of my male friends connected with the story, the brotherhood, the passion in the movie Braveheart. Could it be that images of men banding together, fighting for freedom, their community, their families, and for what they know is right, awakens the voice inside of us, that there is within us a warrior that resides in our DNA. And so one concluding paragraph. With your head held high, stand on what you believe. Scott says, when I leave my home in the morning, I've already decided what I want my life to look like. So when the winds of circumstances buffet me, I will not move from the place where I stand, firmly secure in what I know is true. And long before the guy cuts me off in rush hour traffic, I've decided what my life will look like. And that choice determines how I will respond in that moment, rather than weakly surrendering to my emotions and selfish nature. I have to be strong because I'm in a battle for my soul. Be a warrior. I think the reason I love Scott's words is because I like the way that he defines warrior. He talks about determining what you believe in, standing for what you believe in, and and fighting for your soul. And so over these last few months as I've been preparing for this series, there's a predominant thought in my mind. And the predominant thought in my mind is simply this. There are some things in life worth fighting for. And so would you make eye contact with me just for a minute? Or my eyes on the screen, whichever is best for you. Your soul is worth fighting for. Truth is worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. Your kids, your grandkids are worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for. The cause of Christ is worth fighting for. 
The people that God has placed in your life is worth fighting for. So here's what I believe. I think the chances are good this morning that almost everybody in the room is fighting for something. And so what are you fighting for? Somebody might say, I'm fighting for a better life. Or I'm fighting for a better financial situation. Or I'm fighting for my career. Or I'm fighting for somebody that I love. Or I'm fighting for the cause of Christ in my world. But I think most people are fighting for something. Let me ask you, when you see the image over my head, those boxing gloves, does it give you good vibes, positive feelings? <laughs> what, what our desire is that throughout these next few weeks that we spend together, that image will take on new meaning for you. And, and the word fight will be redefined. So, so, you know, on the day after Black Friday, when I read online that two people got in a fight at Walmart, I don't have positive feelings about that, do you? And I apologize to Walmart for that comment. Or, or when I hear that a fight broke out, there's nothing positive that happens inside of me. Or when I hear about a family that's been fighting each other for years, I don't have anything good to say or feel. But interestingly, there's a guy whose name is Paul who is responsible for writing much of the New Testament. And when Paul talks about the Christian faith, he uses the metaphor fight. He talks about living this Christian life out as a bit of a fight. The, the, the sermon prompt that you were given online this week just said that our world is full of endless distractions. True story, right? Hidden agendas, harmful temptations. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to fight. And so Paul uses all of this language in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. These are two letters that he writes to his young apprentice, Timothy. And, and this is the kind of language that he used. He says to him, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. He says to him, fight the battle well, Timothy. And at one point, he refers to him like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In fact, when Paul comes to the very end of his life and he looks back over his life and he kind of desires to sum it up, here's what he says about his own life. I have fought a good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. So here's a good question. If it really is a fight, if Paul is right, and if that is a a valid metaphor that we can use as we think about living the Christian life, then who are we fighting? Who's the enemy? So Paul writes another letter later to a group of people who are at the church in Ephesus. And in his letter to these Ephesians, here's what he says about the struggle. Our struggle or our fight or this battle that we're in, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so Paul says this fight that we're engaged in is not, 
It's not like we're fighting people on this earth. That's probably symptomatic to the real battle. The real fight is against the spiritual forces of evil. It's not the only time that we see this kind of language in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Peter, he talks about your enemy. And, and then he identifies your enemy. And he says it like this, your enemy, the devil, is looking for someone to destroy. And so here we are in a battle as believers engaged in a fight and the enemy and the word of God is clearly defined for us. Now, when Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, he begins in a conversation about truth and he contrasts it to false teaching or false doctrine. So there's a lot of voices today, isn't there? Aren't there? Uh, there's lots of information. It, it overwhelms me when I think about waking up in the morning and, and opening my laptop and just at my fingertips, there's, there's almost anything that I want to know. Uh, th- there's podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. There's, there's, there's media, there's news, uh, scrolling news. There's just information coming at me constantly. Th- th- there's people all around me talking to me. A lot of people have lots of things they want to say to me. And, and so what, what I just live in this constant state of information, voices just pouring into my head. I'm hearing voices everywhere. And while there are many voices, there's only one source of truth. Do you know what the book of Hebrews says? It is impossible for God to tell a lie. It's not a possibility. God is only capable of speaking truth. Jesus himself said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I tell the truth. I sometimes speak the truth. I convey the truth. No, 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 no. He said, I am the truth. I am the very source of truth. And so while there are many voices today that we hear, there is only one source of truth. And the message that Timothy is trying to get, or Paul rather, is trying to get across to his son in the faith, Timothy, is simply this. He says, Timothy, the truth is worth fighting for. And he commands him in this early passage to fight for the truth. So would you grab your Bible and open it to the book of 1 Timothy? And we'll spend these next six weeks in 1 and 2 Timothy, okay? So they are called 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. Do you have any idea why? It's because Paul writes to three, two guys rather, Timothy and Titus, and he gives them instructions on how to be good pastors. So that's why we call them the pastoral epistles. So here's what Paul says to Timothy, chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. I love those words, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our father 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he dives in. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. We'll talk about the context a little more in a moment. So that you may command certain people not to teach false, false doctrines. So you have the truth, and the opposite of true would be false. And so you got people who are teaching something that is not truth. What they're teaching is false. So stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It's a little bit of a tough conversation to us, but there was some fascination with certain myths, traditions passed down that were not true, somehow caught up in this endless conversation of genealogy that was fascinating people somehow. It was all false teaching. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith, by the way. God's work is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these, these virtues of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And have turned to meaningless talk, this endless talk about genealogies and myths. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. In other words, they're confused. They're not preaching and teaching the truth. So Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. So that be recalling... By recalling them, you may fight the battle well. I, I, I ran out of town just for, for two days this past week. We have a little granddaughter that lives in Cincinnati. Her name is Sadie, if I've not brought that up. And, um, and, and Sadie's parents needed to be gone for a couple of days, and so... Um, I flew out on Wednesday night. I flew back on Friday night, just a quick two-day trip. I, I, I snapped a picture while I was gone. Not, not if, I did snap pictures of Sadie, but I didn't bring those with me. But I think I was landing in Chicago the other night. And uh, it may seem weird to you. It's okay if it does. We all think differently, I know, but... I, I, I try to imagine God's perspective as he looks at the world. So sometimes when I'm really high in an airplane, I feel like I can see the curvature of the earth. I, I think about God looking down on this planet, this globe where we all live, where humanity resides. And, and I kind of feel like when I'm in a plane sometimes, I get God's view. I know but I'm trying to relate somehow to God. All of those lights represent people under them most likely. I, I just look at the world and I just think about mountains and oceans and valleys and plains and yet it's just also kind of crowded with human beings. And, and, and I think about God being able not only to look at it from a distance, but to zoom in, right? And he actually witnesses us living life every day. 
You think I'm crazy? That's all right. But even maybe he's able to look, he is, through our rooftops. He's all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't see. What, what is more impressive to me than that is that he is able to look inside my heart and my mind. Even to know my thoughts. To know my desires. To, to, to know where I stand in relationship with him. I'll, I'll, I'll take a picture of a way, but, but I keep asking myself the question, what, what is it that God, when he looks at this planet, earth, where all of us hang out, what is it that God wants for all of us? What is it that God desires for all of us? And in the second chapter of 1 Timothy, he literally just gives us the answer. Here's what he says. Speaking of God, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, I mean, think about this. Wants all people to be saved. Remember the most popular Bible verse there is, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish. But what? Be saved. By coming to a knowledge of the truth. But, but as I continue to read this letter to 1 Timothy, I find that, that people have departed from the truth. I pe- find that people have been robbed of the truth. I find that people have turned deaf ears to the truth. But what God wants for everybody you know and love and what God wants for you is that you would somehow come to a knowledge of truth and that you would be saved. So here's the context. Jesus comes onto the scene. 2,000 years ago, God so loved the world, he sent his son, right? Jesus had such an impact on the world that he has become the most popular person who has ever lived in the history of the world. Two-thirds of the population of the world claim to follow his teaching. Countless lives have been transformed. Among them was a guy whose name was Paul. Paul was so overwhelmed at the transformation that occurred in his own life that he has this urge to share it with everybody that he can. And so he takes long trips called missionary journeys, telling as many people as he can about Jesus. And where he would share that story, other people's lives would be transformed, and he would form kind of little communities of faith, congregations, churches, often in houses that would meet. And then often he would send his apprentices to go check on the churches. Timothy is now in Ephesus, a church that was planted by Paul years before. And he says, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus because something not good has happened in Ephesus. The wheels are falling off in Ephesus. The problem is there's false teaching. People are talking about something other than the truth there. And I want you to stay, and I want you to correct the false doctrine. I want you to command them not to teach false doctrine any longer. And then he writes a letter saying, I think this would be a good way to go about taking care of what I've asked you to do. 
Lots of false teaching. About myths, about genealogies, about the law, about marriage, about food, if you go through both letters, about godlessness, about money, about the resurrection. I sometimes find myself in a conversation with someone who is making a life decision. They're reading books, they're listening to podcasts, they're having conversations with friends, and they're collecting lots of data. Recently, I was in one of these conversations with somebody who had just made a significant life decision. My question to them was, I understand you've gathered a lot of data from a lot of sources. But have you consulted God's opinion in the matter? Have you thought that maybe God might have an opinion about this major life choice that you're making? I think what I'm trying to say is if someone maybe does not attend a church, does not read the Bible, does not spend time listening to Christian music, does not open their hearts to conversation with Christian friends, then where's the truth coming from? My, my point is this, we hear many voices in our world, but seldom hear the voice of truth. And, and I'll confess to you right now that I get up in the mornings, and, and many times when I do, the reason that I open my Bible and I sit down and I begin to fill my mind with that and with prayer and with Christian music is because I feel like the day before I have been lied to all day long. And, and it's one of those moments when I come back to the truth. And I fill my mind with what is true. So let's move to another place. Let's talk about what we're going to do, okay? Because you've got to go here in a little bit. And you're yawning like crazy. You need a nap. <laughs> Across the southern border of California in Tijuana, there's a prison called La Mesa. It's where the most notorious criminals are housed in Mexico. Hardened criminals. But over the years, they've melted at the sight of an 80-year-old little nun named Mother Antonia. She spends her afternoons praying with them, counseling them to ask their victims for forgiveness, ensuring that they have the medications that they need and clean water to drink. She wasn't always a nun. In fact, she was a Beverly Hills socialite 
Her name was Mary Brenner Clark, twice married, twice divorced, mother of seven kids. After her kids were all raised at the age of 44, she came into a personal relationship with Jesus. Her life was transformed. And in her deep communion with God, she began to be burdened for the poor, the wounded, the forgotten. And finally sold everything that she owned, traveled across the border to make her residence in a 10 by 10 tiny cell in that prison to live among the prisoners. The warden said, she has spread the love of God all over this place. Once when a riot broke out in the prison, Mother Antonia had been gone for the afternoon. She returned that night to find the electricity was cut off. There were fires started throughout the prison. The prisoners had taken hostages and taken guns. She begged the guards, let me go in, I can help. It's too dangerous. She said, I'm not afraid. When you love, you don't have to be afraid. The Bible teaches us love cast out fear. Let me go in. I can help. They finally let her go into the prison. She found prisoners. She brings them together. She says to them, listen, it's unfair that you're here without food and clean water, locked up in this place, but this isn't the way to handle it. You've got to listen to me. I will help you, but you've got to give me your guns. To which they responded, Mother, when we heard your voice, we dropped the guns out the window. She was an advocate for both guards and prisoners, for peace, and for humane treatment. When anyone were asked to describe her, one word came to the top always, love. It's the one quality that described her best. Every morning she said, I'll wake at five. I spend an hour or more with God. It's where my reservoir of love is refilled. Do you know what's going on here in Timothy? Do you understand what the goal of the command is? Yeah, I get it. They're trying to correct false doctrine, right? Going to set some people straight. Came to knock some heads together. I'm here to fight. I mean, look at the gloves. We're here to win. Our side is going to win this thing. Because we're on his side, right? And Paul says, time out. You misunderstood. The goal of the command is love. That, that's the goal. We, we want to love these people. You, you say, where in the world would you get love like that? I mean, if, if the goal of fighting for truth is love, where do, where do you get that kind of love? Let me show you one verse again. May I? Love comes... From a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. This undivided loyalty to God. God, I'm all yours. This conscience, this, this innate God-given ability to make moral choices. My conscience is good because I follow it. A sincere faith, genuine, not, 
not a pretend faith, a sincere faith. In fact, you can't have a pure heart and a good conscience without faith. We can't concoct this on our own. We can't make ourselves good. We can't make our hearts good or our conscience good. It all comes from God. So I guess I would ask you today, when you think about the church of Jesus Christ in America, it's our best reference, what do you see? Last week I talked about persecution, and I said in one of the services that sometimes Christians are persecuted because of their convictions, and sometimes Christians are persecuted because they just say and do really stupid things, and you got to sort that all out in your own head. And when that happens, instead of fighting the good fight, we start fighting the bad fight. And we're just known as people who want to fight. So look at the image over my head again. And find a new definition for fight. We fight from a heart of love. Nick's going to come out. We're going to sing before we go. I just want to take a few seconds to say to you that when we give someone the truth, and someone said to me this week, Pastor Rick, I think the most loving thing that we can do is tell someone the truth. When we give someone the truth, think about what we give them. We give them peace, we give them hope, we give them confidence. When the world is shaken and you're standing on God's truth, you don't have to shake. When troubles come and you're standing on God's truth, you don't have to be afraid. There is no greater gift, no more loving thing that you can do than to share the truth with somebody. And that's what this song is about. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.